Hi guys, this is the Unseen Hook Podcast and I'm the host, Daphne Paris. I'm going to be chatting with friends about great books and exploring the metaphorical, hope-sucking dementors and timeless truths within them. Hopefully, you'll pick up some good recommendations or maybe just enjoy a conversation about a story that you've read too or simply be encouraged to read a little more. So grab your cup of tea or your basket of laundry or hop on your exercise bike if that's your thing, just maybe not all at once. Hi everyone, today I'm talking about the science fiction novel Dune by Frank Herbert, which was published in 1965. I'm chatting with a good friend of my husband and mine, Dom McLaughlin, and he's a fellow fan of speculative fiction. So he had some great insights into this iconic sci-fi work, and he's read a lot more of the genre than I have, so it was a really cool discussion. I would recommend Dune for ages 16 and up. Uh, but depends on, like, if you're thinking about it for your children, maybe best for you to read it first. Um, it's mainly because of the complexity of the story um, and some differing moral codes that are portrayed. Also, the villain is a pedophile. Um, it's only implied. There's nothing graphic. But he's he's a very, um, very <laughs> villainous villain, one that we love to hate. I loved this book overall and I would definitely read it again. In fact, I intend to read it again because um, especially after talking with Dom, I think there was a lot that um, that I missed, you know, um, a lot of the implications and um, things around politics and religion, which he had some really good insights into. So, yeah, hoping to read it again. But enjoy this conversation. I certainly did. Just a disclaimer, there was a lag time between my voice and Dom's from around the 40-minute mark. There was an internet slow connection or some sort of dropout at that point and unfortunately it's not something that I could edit out uh, afterwards. So my apologies for that and uh, hope you can still enjoy the conversation. Thank you. Hi, Dom. Thanks for joining me today. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. <laughs> I'm actually really excited to talk to you about Dune because... Yep. Um, it's a book that none of my other friends have read. Oh, right. And I enjoyed it so much and I really wanted to talk to someone about it. So, And I love talking about books, so um, it's really great that you could come on today to have a chat about it. That's cool. Um, I actually thought I'd read it, but when I picked it up, I realised I hadn't. So I really enjoyed it too. Very good. Yeah, it, it was it was. It was better than what I had expected. So it's really my first foray into um, science fiction, I think, okay. aside from maybe a few sort of soft sci-fi things here and there. Um, but, yeah, I'm not really a sci-fi reader generally. Okay. Um, but I, it's funny because Andrew and I, uh, my husband Andrew and I, we do like reading, uh, sorry, watching um, sci-fi movies. So, yeah. yeah, it's just a genre that I hadn't really got into reading before. But you quite seems like sci-fi. Is that yeah, right? Yeah. I was going to say it sort of seems to me that a lot of sci-fi now is movie first. I don't know if that's true, but it feels yeah. that way that perhaps there's less books being published in sci-fi. I don't know. But, yeah, I really I really enjoy sci-fi. Well, yeah. yeah, cool. I, I had a look at um, – I was looking at the history of the Nebula Awards and the Hugo Awards. So um, apparently Dune – so that was published in 1965 and it won the inaugural um, Nebula Award, which is one of the major science fiction awards. Wow. Um, so it won that award in uh, for best for best novel in 1966, wow. I think. And so I had a look at all the um, the other novels that have won since then, 
and then there were all these subcategories and there's just there's so much like this oh, this cool. whole world of fiction of speculative fiction that I have not really ever delved into and um and and there's some that look really good that's cool maybe <laughs> so, I should look that up yeah. too I need some more sci-fi books yeah yeah cool and in fact I saw um there was the book that inspired the movie Blade Runner oh really it's called have you do you know have you heard of that book no no it's called do androids dream of electric sheep oh wow <laughs> wow that's a, what a cool title <laughs> yes right anyway so that was I think it was um around the same time actually oh, as wow. June okay. in the 60s yeah cool anyway so yes I I did really enjoy this book and I feel like today is a good day to talk about it because it's really hot or it was really hot today in, in yeah. Western Sydney. So I can relate to the, um, <laughs> the dry planet of June. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So I thought maybe we'll just go through um, like a, a really brief plot um, summary for sure. all the listeners to sort of get an idea of what it's um, like the setting and, and what it's about. Yep. So um, it takes place in a future universe um, and where there are planets controlled by noble families. Um, and these families form houses under the emperor. So it's an imperial system. And there's this um, a really valuable commodity uh, called melange, or I'm, I'm not sure if that's the correct pronunciation, but I'm going to say melange or spice, which is what it's commonly known as. And that can only be found and is mined on the planet of Arrakis, which is also known as Dune because it's a desert planet. So one of these noble houses under... Um, uh, like one of these imperial noble houses is called the Atreides, House of Atreides and it has been assigned to Dune um, to govern that planet where currently the House Harkonnen is transitioning out of that planet. Yeah. Um, but the Duke Leto, who is the head of the House of Atreides, he suspects a plot against him and his house. So that's sort of how it opens um, in this future sort of kind of feudal system interstellar world yeah um yeah and uh, i think we know pretty early on who the good guys and the bad guys are in fact that's one of the things i liked about this book like yeah you've got um pretty clear you've got a line drawn in the sand pretty clearly early Pretties on. And baddies, yep. yes exactly exactly you know you mostly know where people stand although there was there were still a few really good twists yeah it's not it's not all in, um totally predictable yeah Great. Did you want to add, add anything to that? I mean, we, we can go through the plot like as we Yeah, as no, let's we just talk, go through right? as we talk, yeah. 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 yeah, okay. So um, I sort of thought like in terms of themes yeah. for this book, the three that I um, thought that stood out the most was um, predominantly the the idea of destiny, so the destiny of like our individual destiny and, and that of the characters yeah. um, versus their choice yeah. in um, in life yeah. and everyday choices as well, and how their choices affect their um, their destiny as well. Yeah. So that's a really big one for the main for the protagonist. So his name's Paul. He's a member of the House of Treaties and, and the heir to the um, to the house. The dukedom. So um, the dukedom. Yes, that's the one. The ducal heir. Um, and then the second theme I thought um, was. I mean, I probably wouldn't talk so much on it, but like around the interplay of church and state. I reckon it, it and should be religion and politics, actually. Religion and politics, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's probably more accurate. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, a really interesting thing. I've got a few points on that I thought were really cool. 
Cool. And then um, the thing that comes out in sci-fi, uh, I think, yeah. frequently, not, I said I'm not a big reader of sci-fi, but, you know, I, we do like watching sci-fi sometimes, is the defining ele elements of humanity. Yeah, that's a huge one. So it's, yeah. yeah. So it's always interesting to see what, what they sort of, um, it's always interesting to see what they, um, what these stories pull out as, um, you know, the thing that, the parameters that makes a thing human yeah, or creature. absolutely. Yeah. I once heard, mm. um, heard someone say that sci-fi is really the examination of current issues but projected into the future to avoid getting into trouble, which I thought is kind of a really interesting way of thinking about it. You know, yep. people don't have preconceptions like that. that set in the future. I like that. Yeah. So you're pulling it out of, out of the current world yes. so that you can test these ideas exactly. without people pointing at you and blaming exactly, you and calling yeah, you a exactly. scandalous freak or something. That's yes, right. okay. Yeah. So that was really cool. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I, I have felt that, um, you know, getting a bit more into sci-fi movies and, and now reading, mm. that it, it's sort of uh, a way, yeah, to test ideas without the disruption and distraction of the normal human experience. So yeah. you're sort of like these, these ideas are sort of contrasted even more, yes. I think. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, yeah. And you can also yeah. set up... Um, you know, an entire, or you can set up a character, but you can also set up a culture that has a certain way of operating so you can test an idea in all its sort of, you know, uh, fullness. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, really cool. Mm. So what did you what did you love or like most about this book, do you think? Um, yeah, so um, one of the things that I, th I find intriguing about reading um, you know, books are, are kind of exploring ideas is they also have to make them a good story. So, like, I, I really, really liked some of the, the imagery in the book. I thought the author did a great job of, you know, creating some of the scenes. And um, so I really liked that. Like the, um, the House of Trades kind of symbol is a falcon or a hawk. Um, and that sort of crops up at little points on the way through and sort of sometimes in their behaviour. So there's some really cool imagery, like, around that. Um, all those yeah. good descriptions and I really liked um, I guess maybe I'm a bit of a political nerd but I like some of the politics and uh, some of the things that they that were worked into the plot um, especially I think yes that that dinner where they sort of meet the the locals for the first time yes yeah. I love that yeah. and, and as I as I even I think in, even in the first sort of 10 to 20 pages I really thought um, this is going to be good. Like his writing yeah. is good. And it's not, I mean, he's pretty prosaic. I don't think he's as poetic as other, no. um, you know, like, okay, you always think of Tolkien. So he's not He's not as poetic as yeah. he is, but it's different. His writing is so clever, so engaging. Yeah. And by the time I got to that dinner, I, I, I thought, okay, now I know this is going to be great. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a big political nerd at okay. all, um, but... Um, I did love the complexity and the different levels that the story was being told on yeah. at that point. And, you know, it sort of, it really elevated the book, yeah. I felt. Can I, um, yeah. can I quote a little um, scene that I thought was really awesome? Yeah, sure. Um, just um, when Duke uh, Leto Atreides is first, is basically his first um, night on June, he's been up doing stuff. Um, it's sort of, I love the way he describes this, but also um, it's sort of, 
is, is, is also reflects Paul Atreides' first kind of um, feeling that actually he might like the planet because up until now it's been a desert and that's somewhere he didn't really want to go. Um, there came the long bell tolling movement of dawn striking across a broken horizon. It was a scene of such beauty it caught all his attention. Some things beggar likeness, he thought. He'd never imagined anything here could be as beautiful as that shattered red horizon and the purple and ochre cliffs. I just think that's fantastic. It's beautiful. Yeah, I, I really like that as well. It's funny because I went back to look for it when I was writing up my notes and, um, yeah, that the imagery of their, their first impressions on Dune and the sunsets and the, and the starkness of the environment and, and how much that impacted both Leto and, and yes. Paul. Uh, that was really good as well. Yeah. So I really liked, um, I also really liked the imagery and the sense of place. I think Herbert um, achieves that really well, like through his naming. He seems to have really clever names for things yeah. and um, and even like the languages. So, I mean, you don't, you don't hear too much of the language of the people of Dune. Actually, maybe we should, we should um, go through what the, who the key players are. Yeah, that's are. probably a good idea. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so we've got uh, the House of Atreides. We've got Duke Leto, as we said, and then his his uh, concubine is Lady Jessica. Yeah. They're not married, but they have a really great relationship. Yeah. And um, and then Paul is their son. He's the Duke Leto, as we said, and then they have a, um, uh, a number of people around them who are uh, like mentors and um, – military type figures um and so yeah duke leto he's a he's i thought he was a really i thought he was a really good character but you kind of know from the beginning because of um various prophecies and um his own thoughts (laughs) yeah and his own thoughts as well his own sense of doom right yeah that he's he's sort of um not going to get too far into the story he's not going to survive yeah so he He's a really interesting character. Like he's he's a a man of I think um, integrity, yeah. And I think he's passed on a lot of those traits to his son yeah. Paul. Um, but you also sort of see this. Um, uh, well, I guess the metaphor in the book is sort of beastliness, which um, Jessica, so his wife, she sees that part of him, which has come from. Leto's father, so the grandfather of mm. Paul, and he, so who was a really um, uh, like a bit of a showman, like really um, like into combat type yeah. things, and just like he was sort of he was sort of less of the man that Jessica loved. If you know, uh, he's just not as human. Yeah. I think is probably is probably what um, what she didn't like about the grandfather. In fact, she really didn't yeah. like him. And, uh, and Duke Leto was uh, was sort of more human, though he'd never undergone this test for humanity. So there is this test which is called the Gom Jabbar. Is that how yeah, you say it? Yeah, that's how I say it, which is um, a poison needle. Yeah. That's right. So it's a poison needle and the test is executed by this... Um, I guess, an institution called the Bene Gesserit. Yeah. And so they're another major player in the book. Yes. Um, would you call them a religion? Well, yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, a church? Uh, no. I, that, 
yeah, I think we probably need to talk more about that <laughs> as to what they are, but it's not clear. So they, they definitely have religious elements in, in there. They're supposed to be probably in order. There might be a way of thinking about them. Mm. But, um, yeah, but also Jessica, the Duke's wife, is a Bene Gesserit. Mm -hmm. That's right. And the Bene Gesserit, they have this motive, which you sort of you pick up on pretty early in the yeah. story. Um, and they were trying to basically engineer through breeding um, uh, a, a messiah. Yeah. And I guess you don't really know what the purpose of this messiah is for a while. In fact, I don't think you, you ever really have that clarity around why they're doing this and, and what, what the role of that messiah is for the Bene Gesserit, like why, why yeah. they're doing this. I, but you know that, that is their, that's their ultimate goal is that they, they train these women. So the Bene Gesserit is like this, okay, let's say an order. I think that was a good word, an order of women and they have reverend mothers and um, they have religious texts and they're, they're trained to be really um, savvy uh, politically, yeah. but they also have these um, sort of mental powers um, where they're able to, I would say, mm, influence people to do things yeah. or, um, yeah. And even, even so, sometimes and, and they control them. Brief, yes. Briefly, yeah. Probably for a short time. Yeah. 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 Right. Right. And they can read people. They, they seem to be able to read people Absolutely. very well. Yeah. Um, yes. So Jessica is Lady Jessica is one of the Bene Gesserit, or she's been trained by the Bene Gesserit, and then she was married or partnered off to Duke yeah. Leto, ordered to produce a female heir yes. who would, yeah. And so she was ordered by the Bene Gesserit and then she's gone against their wishes and, and um, Lita really wanted a son and so she's had a son and they were really unhappy with her about it and anyway, yeah. And, and I suppose it's relevant that the the, the, the boy is, the, the sort of Messiah figure is going to be a boy so there's a question mark about Paul. Yes, that's right. That's right. So he, so Paul undergoes the test, the Gomjabar, the test for humanity before uh, the family leave for June. So they they come from this planet called Caladan, which is a um, so it seems like a very verdant yeah. planet. It's, it's always raining and yeah. lots of ocean. <laughs> it's like the total opposite of June, which is just um, arid, dry, lots of desert. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so he, I'm not sure. Anyway, I think. For, for whatever reason, the Reverend Mother Helen Gaius um, ends up on Caladan to test Paul with the Gomjabar to test for his humanity, and he passes the test with flying yeah. colours. So he, um, so the test is is this thing where he has to put his hand into this box of like box of pain, yeah. basically, and I think it stimulates, stimulates nerves and um, creates a sensation of intense it's pain. Burning. And um, yeah, burning pain, right? So he feels like his his skin is falling off from his his flesh is falling off yeah. from his bones. And and I think the Reverend Mother says something about um, that, and like it, the test will determine humanity or not by your reaction to the pain. So whereas an animal will gnaw off its arm in order to yeah. get away, a human can withstand the pain in, like in order to 
achieve a greater good or, or and then and then kill the attacker or something oh, yeah, it's also, um, it's so, just, in some ways it's a test of mental strength so it feels like your your hand is burning off but you've got yeah. to keep your keep your hand there by your willpower that's right yeah yeah it's an interesting yeah. <laughs> that was an interesting test because like <laughs> i mean i'm sure there were tons of other humans running around yeah. <laughs> the yeah. universe that that haven't undergone yeah. this test and why is it that you have to withstand this like intense pain in order to be I human? think it I was um, partly connected to the Reverend Mother's displeasure that um, that he had been born so Jessica had decided on a boy um, and so it was partly to punish Jessica that she undertook the test on him but it was, it's something that all yeah. of them just have to go through so there's also a mild implication that maybe he has some Benny Jesuit skills because obviously Jessica's been training him. Yes. Yeah. So you think that um, the Reverend Mother was taking it out on Jessica, just getting a bit of getting yeah, a bit I of her own said back. that somewhere. Uh, I couldn't tell you where, but um, Jessica reflects mm-hmm. that this is a punishment for her. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. But then the Reverend Mother also picks up on, um, so this is this test happens yeah. early in the book, and she picks up on, um, on Paul's, he has these qualities aside from um, later on he, he sort of, I don't know if it happens around, probably around then, he has this sense of doom, so this terrible yeah. purpose, um, and he has this uh, ability to sense rightness and truth. So, like, on the one hand, he can sense, he has this sort of instinct um, for when somebody is Mm. telling the truth and instinct for what is actually the truth. Um, So, so for example, the Reverend Mother tells him something and he he recognises that she's telling the truth. However, what the the thing that she's saying is not, in fact, true. But she believes it, so she's telling the truth. So he has, he has this instinct yeah. around that, but he also has this sort of, I mean, I guess you might call it a well-formed conscience or something because he he has a sense um, of offence against rightness when um, when the Reverend Mother explains to him um, to some extent the breeding program yeah. of the Bene Gesserit and how they um, want to pull together certain political players and marry them off to their Bene Gesserit yeah. trained women to produce a genetically perfect heir uh, on Messiah. And he, like, he rebels, you know, he's like, oh, that sounds wrong. (laughs) And um, that's an interesting uh, point in terms of Paul's character because um, later on, not, you know, still early in the book, um, Jessica reflects that um, Paul has the Atreides sincerity, almost a naive honour, So there's that kind of, that seems to be part of the house as well as his own character. Yeah. Yeah, right. So it's not just his training. It's like with the Bene Gesserit training that has come from Jessica. It's it's, it's possibly a um, a trait that's come from yeah. his father and his upbringing. Yeah, yeah, good upbringing. It's interesting too how, um, like, as well as the Bene Gesserit, it, um, Frank Herbert seems to have separated so the, the scientifically minded people who do calculations are called mentats and they seem to they have, have one of those in their main houses. They've got the Bene Gesserits who are kind of like an order who are the psychological experts and genetic experts. Then you've got the, 
the benders of space that allow space travel and need the spice. So they're another group, the guild. Uh, so they seem to be almost mm-hmm. specialties mm-hmm. of, you know, I suppose we might call them profession, but they're kind of taken to the nth degree. Um, then you've got the um, the kind of the military types. So they don't seem to have a name as a group, but they have another sort of area of, of specialty in, in military prowess. It's interesting, interesting mm-hmm. to split them as, yes. well as, as well as the kind of houses. They've also got specialties um, interacting with them. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's right. I liked the idea yeah. of the Mentats. I mean, um, I guess it's they're, they're a, a sort of advisor, but um, they, they they have sort of computers have been outmoded and, and Mentats now are these analytical people that have these um, abilities to take in all of the data around them and and sort of try to see what the real truth of the matter is. However, as we saw with the Mentat of the House of Trades, so Fufi Howat. So he he says um, a number of times things about how emotion is like yeah. doesn't come into it and um, have to be able to put that to one side and whatever. But he is obviously uh, emotionally affected and and he has these built-in biases against the Bene Gesserit and therefore against um, Jessica and doesn't trust her and and so he's one of the ones that so later on uh, well it's quite early in the story I guess that um, how Leto uh, suspect that there's this plot yeah. against the house, um, and uh, Thufir Howat, the the mentat of the House of Trades, he suspects that Jessica is involved and that she's sort of working with the Harkonnens. Yeah. So, I mean, she isn't, and we know that. We know that, yes. like at the beginning, um, he's just has his bias. He can't put that. He can't put this emotional bias or whatever it is that he doesn't like about them. I think yes, he calls them witches. The witches yeah. Then it just... Yeah. <laughs> because they can do things that seem beyond, kind of beyond human power in terms of their control and reading people. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting too. I thought um, Jessica made this uh, criticism of them, of um, Fufair in talking about the Mentat. Um, it was a bit of a comment, a, a philosophical comment, I thought, um, Deep in the human unconscious is a pervasive need for a logical universe that makes sense, but the real universe is always one step beyond logic. And she goes on to criticise his emotional involvement because <laughs> he can't—he can't really mm-hmm. be completely emotionally detached. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, of course she's right. I mean, that's really part of the nature of being human, and we don't—we don't know that Thufir has passed the Gomtubar test for yeah. humanity. But I mean. I think there are a lot of characters you can assume are human and and that's one of the things is that you, you can't put emotion to yeah. one side all the time. I mean, yeah. we're not robots. So maybe they should uh-huh, have kept maybe, computers. Yeah. <laughs> there was an interesting little skill about why even like anyway. back in 65, um, he could see the idea of computers not necessarily being able to take in important data that wasn't numerical. Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. All the qualitative stuff. I did a a, a subject on oh. modeling um, in my master's yeah. um, a long time ago, and I remember right at the beginning, the lecturer told us, you know, you can model, you can model anything you like, but all models are wrong, and some are useful, and um, and you can never really incorporate the element yeah. of human behavior. So, you know, you can, you can predict that humans are going to behave in a certain way, but they're always going that's to be right. unpredictable. So you that's just... A, that's a, there's that sort of, it's not, not, well, I guess it's a joke about economists, you know, they're always trying to build models and they're trying to model people's behaviour. 
And so the first sentence is, um, okay, let's assume that the world doesn't exist <laughs> because you can never, you can never actually you know, put, it, put people into a model properly. Right. So throw out all the yeah. parameters that yeah. we know and then... <laughs> good. Very good. All right. So why don't we talk about the planet of Arrakis? Do you want to so quickly do, talk do you... about the other house, Sue, if we're doing that? Oh, yeah. Let's talk about the house of Harkonnen. All right. Do you want to you, you oh, talk well, about They're the kind Harkonnen. of set up pretty early on as a baddie, so um, that's nice and clear. Um, there's some really interesting ways in which they, they're sort of portrayed... Um, I suppose if, if uh, Atreides are kind of the honourable and, and truthful kind of house, um, I guess the Harkonnens would be the whatever-it-takes um, kind of house. Um, and they're sort of, I guess mm -hmm. in the book, they're kind of, um, what would you say, I suppose sort of painted as um, pretty violent um, and pretty tyrannical kind of people there's a couple of interesting little things about even the name yeah. so the, the head of that house is baron vladimir harkonnen so obviously a baron is below a duke in terms of rank and then vladimir of course brings to mind vlad the impaler mm -hmm. so i think they're already set up to kind of be the mm -hmm. same guy um he, he has yeah. this, this plan <laughs> of um putting putting one of his it's not quite clear if there is uh biological sons but he's got a couple of sons or heirs and uh, he's going to put in one to make the people of Arrakis hate him, and then he'll bring in his darling uh, that he would prefer as the saviour. So that's the yes. kind of behaviour they, right. they uh, engage in. Um, the other, yeah. I think, the other interesting thing was um, a couple of comments that the Baron made. Um, One must always keep the tools of statecraft sharp and ready: power and fear. <laughs> so that's his kind of approach. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And, and mm -hmm. then another thing. Sorry, go. He's totally. He's totally, he's a total opposite is, of yeah. Duke Leto, isn't he? Like in his, in the way that he operates yeah. everything. I mean, he has he's no also, integrity. He's also enormously he's fat, just, so just to, just in case we didn't get the description, yeah. he's physically repulsive <laughs> as well. <laughs> right. So I'm interested to see how they portray this in the movie because I, you know, when they talk, when, when Herbert talks about in the book about he has these suspensors that help to support yeah. his enormous bulk and sort of carry him around, I can't quite visualise exactly what he what he's talking about there. So I'm interested to see if um, if Vladimir yes. Harkonnen has, like, is, has this crane or something that moves him around or this device that's attached to his body. He did a reasonable you know, job in the, but, yeah, in the other movie, the first, like the one that's already out. Um, yeah, it was kind of like Today. a floating thing with braces, so it's kind of, yeah. But they were suspensive, oh, so nice. they suspended okay. from above, so that was good. Okay. <laughs> I decided I'm not going to watch it until after I've yeah, seen the new movie yeah. because I, I mean, the book, yeah, no, you, you didn't um, like the it book much, much better. Uh, I found the movie a bit superficial compared to the book. I guess there's a lot of detail. It's mm. kind of I, I do sympathise with trying to get all the material into a movie. I must say, but yeah, I think mm -hmm. I think the movie was made for people who read mm -hmm. the book, and I hadn't read the book, and I watched the movie, and I was a bit confused here and there. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. It is an, a very complex yeah. um, story. I, I just want to, like, just the, the contrast of Baron Harkonnen. So, you know, you said that, you know, he'll do whatever it takes. And um, and he really, he just sees um, the people in his house, like even his own 
mm. his own flesh and blood as tools yeah. to achieve an end. Whereas um, Leto, he values his men more than yeah. more than anything. Like it, so, there's this moment in um, on Dune after they've arrived, and he has a Duke Leto goes on a tour of this of a spice mining operation, um, which yeah. goes wrong, and um, and so these this giant sandworm, so that's one of the elements of Dune that we can talk about, um, arrives on the scene, and and the Duke um, goes you know straight into all action stations and let's get my men out of here and let's get the Fremen out of there. That's another yeah. another group to talk about, but the the man who was taking him on the tour, he was struck by how much the Duke was concerned um, over the men rather than the spice which was being mined there like or even the yeah. um the equipment the mining operational equipment and that he'd risked his own life and that of his yeah. son to save these men because he really valued the lives of his men and and you could see that in the loyalty um that people had yeah. for him like he was a good leader and in fact for a little while i i even thought oh maybe he's the messiah that um that you know the bene yeah. are actually looking for and uh, yeah Anyway, so he was a good guy. He's like he, the, the contrast with yeah. the, with the Baron, with the baddie, is yeah. um, is very. There's stark. also um, yes. there's a, a great um, yeah. quote from the Baron: "A carnivore never stops. Show no mercy, never stop. Mercy is a chimera. It can be defeated by the stomach rumbling its hunger, by the throat crying its thirst. You must be always hungry and thirsty." The Baron caressed his bulges beneath the suspenses, like me. <laughs> 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 he's so vile. Yeah. He's so vile. And to top it all off, yeah. he's a pedophile. I mean, <laughs> like, what, yeah. how can you make this guy more disgusting? Yeah. How do you make him more disgusting, make yeah. him a pedophile? I mean, he's just he's a total grub. Anyway. Yeah. Anyway. I'm happy to say that there is nothing that is really graphic about his particular depravity. Yeah. So. Yes. It's not really yeah, a good feature, it's just yeah. part of making him anyway. gross. Exactly. Yes. And gross he is indeed. Physically <laughs> and otherwise. Uh, <laughs> anyway, let's talk about Arrakis. So Arrakis is the planet of Dune and uh, it's mainly just a big desert, but it has these sort of oases, um, which I, I guess they must be... Um, they, they must be built, but so the, the, the cities, so there's the city of Arakeen and I think there was Carthage oh, yeah. maybe and a, yeah. another, a few other cities and they are, um, yeah, these oases on this, on this starkly barren desert planet and the number one concern of everyone on June yeah. is water. So it has this not, not just... Um, economic value but it's almost it's yeah. almost all oh, it's sacred yeah sacred value um to the inhabitants of june and so then june is divided up into um the people that live in the cities and then the people that live in the desert and the desert people are, are called the fremen and um while the harkonnens have been in control of june they have basically just disregarded the Fremen altogether. They just think they're like some sort of Neanderthal peasants. race of, I don't know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, peasants. And and the Baron just, you know, yeah. he he thinks nothing of them. Just just leave them to their, to their own thing. Uh, whereas Duke Leto, he he suspects that there is a lot more to the Fremen 
than meets the eye and, and that um, the Harkonnens have been um, underestimating yeah. them. And, of course, he's, he's right. So, um, and then there are on uh, in the desert, in the deep desert especially, there are these giant sandworms. So that's another thing I'm keen for yeah. in the movie too, the to see that represented. Um, yeah. Yeah, so cool, so cool. So these... I, I'm not exactly sure of how, like, of how they fit into the whole ecological um, Well, this, this could be a possible spoiler, cycle, but, um, but they create the spice. Are they? Well, I mean, so I know yeah. the Fremen call them the makers, right, which you find out later. So at, at the beginning you think, well, they're just this threat in the desert, and they are a threat, but then the Fremen have somehow managed to find a way to... Um, yeah. control them in some sense but they they also respect them as as these like an important element in in the whole yeah. system of of the planet in the whole environmental system so they've got um yeah they, they're involved in in the yeah. process of making the spice somehow um i suppose yeah and interesting they refer to the little makers so i'm i'm, I'm not sure if they're talking about just any kind of smaller organisms that are involved in that process or if they're talking about the giant sandworms and their little baby sandworms. Yeah, they're talking about the little baby sandworms. Yeah, little makers. They need a little baby sandworm to make the water of life. Right. Okay. okay. So I missed that bit. I missed that bit. And the whole water of life part, <laughs> I started to get a little bit. Yeah. All the mysticism and anyway, but it wasn't. It wasn't so important that you know that it, it <laughs> took too much away from the story for me, but. It, it did become a bit, um, yeah. a bit magical mushroom for me. Although um, <laughs> it does unlock Paul's full abilities, I suppose would be the way to put. It. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So let's let's like backtrack a little bit. So we've got we've, we've got yeah. the dinner party, which we've talked about briefly, um, and that was a really interesting I, progression oh, in the story. And then the dinner party. You, Sorry, uh, another thing I really liked about that was their their little code yeah. signals that they were able to pass messages. You see that in another instance, um, which was another really interesting scene later in the book with um, uh, who's the guy who's the friend of the emperor. No, I can't oh, yeah. remember his name. I didn't write his name down. He's a eunuch and, he, and his wife um, is a Bene Gesserit. And yes. they have this secret language between them. I can't, I can't remember the name. Anyway, that was a really interesting thing because it was totally off planet, and um, and you see a little bit of the family of Vladimir Harkonnen and and what's going yeah. on on there on their totally. planet. Yeah. Anyway, interesting. Yes. So after the dinner party, um, very soon after that, we have an attempt on the life. Or was it before the dinner party? Anyway, there's an attempt on Paul's life. And then later on, um, Duke Leto is, yeah. is um, attacked. And it turns out that the guy who was the traitor in the house was like the least likely in the minds of Duke, in the mind of Duke Leto and, and I think in the rest of the house because it was this guy who um, he's had this sort of training which makes him unquestionable and, and um, you know, he has an immaculate record because he's had this, training in some imperial yeah. school of i don't know i don't yeah. know exactly what he is he's, he's a doctor the imperial conditioning which means he can't he can't be sort of suborned but he is suborned 
Yes, right, yeah. And that is something that there's another interesting yeah. um, little side story with what goes on between him and, and right. um, Vladimir Harkonnen. Anyway, yeah. So after the attack um, on Leto, um, uh, he he ends up um, being captured by the Harkonnens and um, shortly after Paul and Jessica are attacked, uh, I think they're on a tour as well or something. They're with, they're with Liet Kynes who is this, he yeah. is the imperial planetologist. And he has this, he's an interesting character because he has this role um, where he's supposed to be, uh, he's yeah. supposed to be on Dune for the Emperor, um, but, but he has sort of embedded himself in the Fremen culture yeah. and has been accepted by them. Um, and he has his, this mission to transform the planet into something a bit like Caladan, you know, that's green and has these stable water cycles, this stable and, um, and, Abundant and similarly, he took his father's job um, doing the same thing, and I think some of this was his father's idea to like transform the planet over time. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. That's right. Yeah. So he has his own um, agenda as well. Um, so there. So Paul and Jessica are out with Liet Kynes, um, and then they're attacked by the Harkonnens, and then they end up on their own in the desert. They've escaped um, from the attack and survived. Um, but they've only got so they have these these steel suits which which help the Fremen to survive yes. in um, in the desert, and they've and the, the man who um, who betrayed the Atreides, the House Atreides, um, he has provided them with these with these steel suits and a steel tent, which will allow them to retain their moisture yeah. and not die of dehydration, I suppose. In order, I guess, like to try and. Um, like he, he wasn't he wasn't against the house, was he? He was he he still um, felt loyalty towards yeah. the duke. In fact, I think he loved the duke. But yeah, but he had other reasons. Yeah. He was basically being so blackmailed by his um, wife was had been captured by the Harkonnens, and is one. The threat was that she was in one of their pain machines. Um, so that's what turned him. Right. Although he tried to get his revenge at the same time by letting Paul and Jessica escape, and by use of the tooth. That's right. That's right. Which he planted in the Duke, so that he could um, poison no, Vladimir, which sadly fun. didn't work. Spoiler alert. Yes. Anyway, but it's it's interesting when Paul and Jessica are on their own in the desert. So they something happens to him then, and I think that's I think that's um, for me that was the first turning point in the story. I mean, it had it had started to accelerate, and then it got to this point in the desert where he's there with Jessica, and something happens to him. And I don't know if it's the the drama of of the attack and the knowledge of the of his father's death, but he suddenly his consciousness is able to traverse time and space, and he can yeah. see all these paths into the future, including his own destiny. And um, and he identifies this this coming war, which he calls a jihad. Yes. So I guess like a holy war type thing. Um, so he he seems to have these mentat powers, which um, yeah, he's suddenly been instilled with. And I don't I don't know if it's come from within him or if it's come from outside of him. But I he's think got the, these I think the implication now, is that he's now imbibed which, enough spice that it's having its effect on him. Um, but also because of the Bene Gesserit training, he's sort of got more um, capacity than others would have. 
But Jessica has the Bene Gesserit training as well, and and she doesn't have the no. same prescience that he does. So he he keeps you know he keeps mentioning in this in this scene why is she so slow? Like why is she not putting together all of these things? And um, so I think yes. he had some predisposition. I would say through already, first of all, the genetic, um, and then secondly through the yeah. fact that perhaps the prophecy Bring is true. Them. Perhaps the prophecy yes. is true and he is the Messiah. Kizak Perhaps, yes. But he doesn't believe it. He, yeah, the Kizak Shadrach. So that's the one. That is that is the Messiah, the Kizak Shadrach. But he doesn't no, he doesn't believe that he no. is the Messiah, does he, at first? I think or yeah. maybe he doesn't want to believe it. Interesting. I don't know. Yeah. Mm. But he says that he thinks of himself at this point. Um, he, he's sort of seeing all these pieces of the future and the past and the present come all together. And, and he sees himself as, as a seed. So he says, the Fremen will call me Muad'Dib, the one who points the way. And and I, I don't know, like, I mean, yeah. it sounds so biblical. <laughs> it just, it immediately took me to <laughs> a, like an image of John the Baptist, <laughs> you know, uh, the yeah. voice of the one who cries out in the yeah. wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And I just thought, like, it's so, I, that's one of the things that I loved about his writing, Herbert's writing, is that, um, like whatever the reason for this device is, it it, it imparts a, like yeah. a sense of gravity and, and meaning um, into the story. But it also, I think, um, is able to shortcut your imagination yeah. to what the purpose I of think, the character is. I think is. also, so, um, and I'm not um, sure, I think yeah. um, the, the interplay of religion and politics is a, is a topic of its own. But I think um, when you're writing about something in the future, you also want to make it recognisable. And I think the way the way he does that, as you mentioned, like jihad yeah. um, is a word that perhaps 1965 people weren't as familiar with, but they were familiar. Like it was sounds familiar, but sounds a bit foreign. Um, so you have that. But then also he, yeah. he actually covers almost every religion. Um, he talks about the orange Catholic Bible, which, of course, is a mm. combination between Catholic and Protestant, which is a nice way of doing mm -hmm. that. Um, <laughs> he talks about um, paradise, yeah, hell, no. angels of death. Um, it, Ruther, who's the, the Harkonnen mm -hmm. sort of anti-hero uh, equivalent of Paul, says, have you been shriven at one point, um, which would be uh, is a medieval phrase for, you know, being confessed before you die. Um, and then the... Oh, sorry, I didn't pick up on say, that. Um, we have How a saying, God created Arrakis to train the faithful. One cannot go against the word of God. Um, so there's a lot of... Um, there's even, as you said, there's actually some direct... Um, almost like quotes um, or shorthand quotes. Um, there's one Old Testament reference early on in the book, our fathers ate manna in the desert in the burning places where whirlwind came. So he, he takes something which is directly yes. from the Bible and then adds something to make it a bit different. So it's a lovely way of kind of bringing uh, familiarity and difference, mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So good. Yeah, very clever. Very um, clever. Yeah, uh, the, uh, mm. the whole um, the whole thing of philosophy uh, pro prophecy is kind of related to that too. That there's this kind of um, yeah, the um, like he talks about um, sorry, he talks about various rites and various names, um, but he seems to cover you know, as I said, sort of um, most of the major religions. So you know, um, there's a fair bit of Arabic sprinkled through. Um, then there's also the thing of this is a direct quote. It was mm -hmm. Ramadan and April on B B 
Bet Bella to Juice, which I assume is Beetlejuice um, mixed up. That sounds strange. But, you know, Ramadan. And then, um, it had been the day of the circumcision mm-hmm. ceremony for little Leto. So, again, you know, it's kind of got something from everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. There was, there's a lot of that that you've mentioned that I didn't pick up on. I did. Um, I did notice that his, his use of some of the Arabic names. So, um, so there was a when he when the Atreides first arrived on Dune, some of the local inhabitants were calling out because um, they recognised something in Paul already, and calling yeah. out and naming him Mahdi, which yeah. means the rightly guided one, and. Um, and the only reason I picked up on that is because I actually had a friend called Mahdi once. So I was like, oh, there's I wonder also, what that name actually the, means. What they, the British so, called the Mad yeah. Mahdi. Um, in the, was the Siege of Khartoum with Lawrence of Arabia, that was the Mahdi who was leading that uh, uprising. Yeah. Mm. Oh, how funny. There you go. I haven't seen that. Andrew keeps haranguing me to watch the movie yeah. of Lawrence of Arabia. The Mahdi needs to put it on the list. Every time we've had a movie night, Lately, he's like, okay, so what do you think of? He'll give me three options and oh, Lawrence of Arabia is always on there. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> you probably should watch it eventually. <laughs> yeah, so I... Yeah. Just, yeah, um, I, I don't know if do now's it. a good time to just talk about um, yeah. Herbert's view on religion or like... Um, yeah, because it yeah, seemed to me that, that. Um, in partly... I mean, I'm not saying he's he sort of necessarily holds this philosophy, but I think... I think the whole thing of socialism, which was very kind of prominent around that time as, as a you know a successful step forward, um, mm. was very, very down on religion. So I wondered if there was, um, you know, it was like the, the opiate of the masses and also also the idea of, um, you know, people being oppressed mm. by wealth. And in this in this book, wealth is water. And they make a point of, you know, the, the, the Harkonnens wasted it mm-hmm. in front of them, in, in essence, um, and trading. Try and try and change some of that, but but the mm-hmm. the other thing is that um, this whole idea that the Bene Gesserit have been sowing this thing called the Missionaria Protectiva throughout all yeah throughout all the planets, which Protectiva, is like basically yeah. um, raises the idea that perhaps religion is superstition mm-hmm. because she knows that whatever planet she goes to, there's some seeds of that legend that have been sown by the Bene Gesserit that she can use for her own purposes to look as though she's sort of like That's predicting right. the future or can understand things That's more right. than she can. Um, um, so that's mm-hmm. it. It's like a safety net. It's a safety. They they provide this safety net for whoever, whatever Bene Gesserit arrives on whichever planet, so they can use those those seeds of the Bene Gesserit prophecies that have been yeah. planted there. You know, whoever lands there can use that to their advantage and get themselves ahead politically yeah. or you know yeah, socially and, or whatever. And I think that in a way it's possible to see that as kind of like um, that that um, religion is kind of like a bit of a con or it's some sort of, you know, something behind it that's really just human politics rather mm-hmm. than necessarily religion as such. Um, and some of the, some of the quotes mm-hmm. uh, that he has different people say um, uh, sort of indicate a kind of, I guess, a, at least in the characters or in the book, there's a kind of, perhaps a view that uh, religion is not to be trusted. Um, an, example, an example would be um, you mm-hmm. must cultivate ecological literacy among the people. That's why I created this entirely new form of ecological notation. Religion and law among our masses must be one and the same. 
his father said. Mm-hmm. An act of disobedience must be a sin and require religious penalties. This will have the dual benefit of bringing both greater obedience and greater F, greater bravery. We must depend not so much on the bravery of individuals you see as upon the bravery of a whole population. So, yeah, so that's, that's mm, the... So that uh, was from Kynes' was father, wasn't it? Remembering what his father said yeah. to him. Yes, yes. And his father, I think his father also said yes, to him that right. a hero is the worst thing that yes. could happen. And he said two other things, which plan. I think, yep. um, again, yep. like the, the scientist sort of, the scientist speaking to his son and therefore playing down the kind of irrelevance of religion. Um, mm-hmm. When law and duty are one united by religion, you never mm-hmm. become fully conscious, fully aware of yourself. You're always a little less than an individual. So it's kind of interesting kind of. Um, and then finally, you mm-hmm. cannot avoid the interplay of politics within an orthodox religion. Uh, because of the pressure, the leaders of such a community inevitably must face the ultimate internal question to succumb to complete opportunism as the price of maintaining their rule or risk sacrificing themselves for the sake of the orthodox ethic. Um, so, again, this kind of thing of like um, the political mm-hmm. movement and the religious movement, um, sure, religion can be used to help um, the political movement, but it's not, it doesn't have an element of truth in itself. Um, and then, then Jessica says, uh, yeah. when religion and politics yeah. travel in the same cart, the writers believe nothing can stand in their way. And she sort of sees it as a problem when Paul kind of leads these people. So it's interesting, there's definitely a kind of, at least a question mark over the role of religion. Yes. Yeah, interesting. I didn't feel that um, like at least when dealing with the Fremen that Herbert was necessarily no. having a go at at religion. And I think that he that he presented their spirituality as yeah. um, yep. more genuine sure. than that of the Bene Gesserit. Um, and at the end of the day, Paul ended up being the Messiah, despite all of them, all of the machinations of the of the Bene Gesserit, despite you know, the fact that Liet Kynes, his dying thought what the, was that yeah, the most like persistent that. principles of the universe <laughs> are accident and error. Yeah. You know, despite Paul, <laughs> despite Paul trying to yeah. avoid his final, like his destiny by making choices that he hadn't foreseen. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, there's, I, I, you know, it was sort of a question in my mind, but I, I sort of, I think I, felt more that he actually was meant to be Yes, that's interesting because was he a messiah um, of the downtrodden peasants who rise up against the evil landowning overlords in that sort of socialist sense? Um, See, because, yeah, that's right. Or does he have a bigger bigger role? Yeah. Well, I don't know because, I mean, I haven't haven't read anything past this book, like I haven't read any of the sequels. However, the fact that... um, by the end of it, he um, he has enough he has enough knowledge through this prescient ability of his to be able to yeah. um, outsmart the emperor, and he he yes, is going to be true. the emperor of the universe. Yeah. I, I think that he's got a bigger a bigger role, and I guess the uh, one of the I really I don't know I haven't is avoided the Messiah. I think, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, yeah that, that's that's as far as I know about anything else after this book. But I, I think that um, I was left with the sense that despite all the, the like the ins and outs and all the 
crazy, you know, manipulative stuff that went on where people were trying to, you know, pull Paul in one direction or another. At the end of the day, he had a, he had a divine purpose and that it was supposed to be this way. And, um, and it sort of reminded me of that saying, which oh, yeah. we've heard before that God writes straight with crooked lines. So, so there was some sort of, there was some sort of um, deity, like a, um, I don't know yeah. if they had a monothe- monotheistic uh, faith, the frown, um, and if even they shared the same God right. as yeah. say the Bene Gesserit or whoever else. But um, but it seemed to me that yeah that the final thought on it was that there was this purpose that yeah, um, right. that nobody could avoid in the, the end no matter righteousness what and heaven smiled their manipulations and machinations he was, were. So, he was warrior and mystic ogre and saint the right. fox and the innocent chivalrous ruthless less than a god more than a man there is no measuring Moody's motives by ordinary standards. I think we, yeah, we can we can definitely mm. conclude that he's above and beyond whatever anyone else was trying to do. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I love good. Yes. Well, it's I awesome. loved it. I loved it. Yeah. It was so good. Uh, I didn't love. I didn't yeah. love the ending though. So you know, at the end. <laughs> And it was really, it was really only yeah. that final little speech by Jessica. So she's talking to, um, to the, I guess, she's, I guess the partner of Paul. Yes. And Paul has had a has a, has had a son with this Fremen woman. And yeah, well, I guess she's a concubine, or she's going to be a concubine because Paul is going to marry yeah, the emperor's sure daughter in order life. to become emperor. Yeah. Um, yeah, right. But that that's another thing is that um interestingly, so all through the book, part of the part of the unique narrative style was that it was interspersed and I guess scenes were separated by yeah. um by these excerpts of historical documents which were written by which were written by yeah. Princess Irulan, who is the Emperor's daughter. And um and I, I thought that was so I thought it was yeah. a really, a really clever device because it gave you um, a different perspective yeah. on what was going on, um, you know, at that point in time. And because it was written yeah. sort of in hindsight, so it's a historical record. And she she seemed to be favourable towards Paul. Like she yeah. um, she seemed to portray him in a, in a good light. So, and you only ever hear from her, I think she yeah. says like, you know, one sentence at the yeah. end of the book, like, you know, in, in terms of in the actual scene. Yes. Yeah not um, speaking as a historian. Um, but, yeah, she was a, a, an interesting character that wasn't really a character in the book, if you know what I mean. No, me either. Yeah. I'm not sure, actually. I'm not sure. Yeah. But she, she, yeah. she's she Bene Gesserit yeah, trained, so Princess Irwin. I wonder if I, yeah. I suspect it might be um, the concubine's daughter, but I don't know. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. But, yeah, no, I love that device yeah, too maybe. because it's – and also it's a really interesting device um, in terms of thinking about science fiction being set in the future. So the future commenting on the book you're reading at the moment is a really interesting idea. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes. It's really clever. Yeah, it's a great book. Very good. good. Well, it's so well, clever. Really- it's so clever. 
I'm really glad. I'm really glad this is my first serious That's foray right. into sci-fi. So I've set the bar really high now. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to the movie yeah. too. Especially well, given I can't that they're going to go once. They must. Um, they must be going to do a good yes. job. You'd say. Yeah, I hope so. Too. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. I've seen some of the trailers and um, okay. and okay. I yeah, I like the look of Paul. I can't remember his name. Yeah, he looks good. He sort of has that sort of seriousness um, in his youth about him. That I don't know. He looks. Yeah, cool. He looks like a, a well cast Excellent. character. Anyway, very good. So I, I always forget to ask. <laughs> well, always. So with my first episode, <laughs> I also forgot to ask um, the guest if they wanted to answer a question at the end of the yes, of the episode. Sure. So. If you are happy to wrap up, okay. <laughs> we are just about out of time. So I think, um, yeah, I, I was going to ask, what are you currently reading or do you have a book that you would recommend to listeners or for this podcast? Oh, okay. So you well, can I'm choose one of those about reading, uh, both if you want to. Now, but I'm scared of being disappointed. So that's probably next on my list would be a sequel. Um, in terms of what I'm currently reading, mm -hmm. I've gone back and am rereading the Harry Potter series again. Um and really enjoying it, actually. It's uh, And I was nice. sort of struck a little bit when I was reading this because I noticed with Harry Potter, like, when you picked it up, um, it, you were instantly engaged and the, the writing style was great and it was hard to, like, um, stop reading. And I found that with June as well. I thought it was really well written the same way. Yeah. 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 Uh, I think yeah. Harry Potter is well, one of the ones that you just got to go back to every couple of years. Actually, I listened to the... Um, to the audio books oh, yeah. by um, uh, Stephen Fry. Uh, so earlier this year, I, I listened to the whole series, and he is so he's so fantastic as a reader. He's just he's so good. He characterizes oh, all like you know Hermione even. Oh, he just well, he does it so that. well. Okay, like good. all of those characters, yeah. he's so good. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I, I was thinking about um, having a look at some yeah, of the I've sequels of Dune as yeah. well, but I had heard that they're not yeah. as good. So, I'm like, mm. yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm curious um, to see how, how, how it plays out, though. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, maybe that's a good idea. Take it one thing at a time. Yeah. I was looking at um, the Gormenghast oh, yeah. uh, books by Mervyn Peake. So I think we've mentioned that before, but um, oh, right. he was a contemporary of Tolkien and, yeah, not as well known, but apparently his his work is also oh. really um, iconic, oh, okay. a different sort of like gothic, oh, gothic fantasy type thing. But, um, Great. Yeah, anyway, so there you go. Something else, yeah, something else to try out. No, but anyway, I'm really glad really you could it. talk with me about June, Dom, so thank you very much. I, 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 don't, I don't think I, I know oh, well. anybody else that would have wanted to talk about sci-fi. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. <laughs> so, I loved it. Thank you very much. Okay. See ya. Bye. No worries. Okay. Thanks. Hi, guys. Hope you enjoyed this episode of The Unseen Hook and can join us for our next one. We are talking about the Ichabog, and I have a very special guest on for the next episode, so it should be fun. Thanks. Hope to see you then. Bye.